Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, welcoming, uh, welcoming me here to Clemson. Um, it's a beautiful campus. I've been here before as an athlete when I, was in, when I was in college, but it's good to be back here. It's been many years. But um, yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about neuroscience and be talking about um, can we reduce a human person to their brain? Can we reduce a human person to their soul? What exactly is a human person? What does science have to say about this? Is science sufficient to speak on these matters? So these are like some of the things. It's going to be fairly broad, and it's, it's intentionally broad just to get people thinking about these. And then if you have questions, you want to narrow in on certain things, uh, please, there's a Q&A section, and I'll answer questions for as long as I can to the best of my ability. So when I was in high school, that's when I really first started getting interested in science. My senior year of high school, we actually were one of the only schools in the country that had organic chemistry. So I got to take, it was called advanced topics of chemistry. So I got to take organic chemistry and uh, physical chemistry to some extent, not what you would do here, and biochemistry. So I got to do this advanced science program and I really loved it. I started to fall in love with the sciences. I never thought I was going to do anything with the sciences. No one in my family had ever gone to college. Not everyone had graduated from high school. So it wasn't something that was on my radar. Like when I was a kid, I always wanted to work at Home Depot. Um, like I'd go and just everyone was super knowledgeable and they knew where things were. And it's like aisle 17, second row. And it's just like, how do you know that? Uh, so it's this really amazing place. So I thought I would work there. But then uh, I was a good runner in, in high school. I ran track and cross country. So I got scholarship offers to go to college. But I didn't know anything about college. Like I said, no one in my family had gone. None of my friends had gone to college. So I just wasn't really sure what college was all about. I grew up in the Boston area. And then um, I ended up going to Virginia Tech. And... I had never been to Virginia. I didn't know anyone there. It was quite an experience. And when I got there, I got there a couple weeks early for cross-country camp. So we went and we were like running in the mountains. It was a great time. And then we came back to campus. And I was sitting in my dorm. And my roommate and suite mates just during the day, they'd be gone for a couple hours. They'd come back. They'd be gone for a couple hours. They'd come back. And I was just sitting there like... It's interesting. I realized that I never went to orientation, and I never registered for any classes. <laughs> so I was just sitting in my dorm, and I was like, this college thing isn't so bad. So I, um, eventually, my athletic academic advisor gave me a call. And she's like, hey, is this, is this Paul LaPena? I was like, yeah. So you don't have any classes. What are you doing? So she uh, called me into her office, and she said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, well, you know, I was, I'm not sure. I was going to see how the running thing works out. And um, this is just like, oh, this typical jock. Not that a runner can really be a jock, but um, it was just this, what is this guy doing here? So she listed off these things. You want to be a lawyer? No, no, definitely not that. Uh, do you want to be an engineer? Oh, I don't think I'm cut out for that. You want to be a teacher? Maybe. Uh, do you want, to, uh, you want to be a doctor? And I was like, yeah, 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 no, I'll do that. I'll be a doctor. 
And she's like, okay. And then she's like, <laughs> started signing me up and I walked out of there and I was like, I'm gonna be a doctor. And I never looked back. So I just walked out and I was like, all right. I applied to one medical school and then that was it. Um, so uh, it was just like, um, yeah, it was, it was ignorance, but it was like this blissful ignorance of like, wow, college is great. You can just do whatever you wanna do. This is amazing. And when I was there, I actually, um, having grown up, we had kind of many struggles in our family and poverty and all of these things. So when I got to college, you know, as, a, as an athlete, it's just, you know, your, your meals are paid for, your, I mean, it's just, it's, everything's provided for you. And it was this first time in my life where I was just like, I didn't have to have a, a job, I didn't have to, you know, make my own money to support myself and help my family and all of this. So it was just this very different environment. So I had all this time to study. So I really started studying quite a bit and found that I was actually a pretty good student, um, which I didn't really know in high school. So as I started entering the sciences though, one starts to ask deeper questions once you get into the sciences, at least I think. So, you know, um, yeah, so you start saying, well, is science sufficient to explain everything? You know, can, can the scientific method give me answers on all of reality and everything that's important? And some people would think that it is, like given enough time, science will explain everything. Um, some people will go as far as to say that science is really the only genuine source of knowledge and what's true, determining what's true, can only be determined through the scientific method. Um, this idea is, is absolute nonsense, of course. So um, the very statement itself is self-refuting, of course. So if you say science is the only genuine source of knowledge, all that you can obtain through knowledge has to be through the scientific method. Well, that's self-refuting because the very statement itself can't be proven through science, right? So it doesn't even get out of the gates. But then as I continued on, I started to realize, well, there's a lot of presuppositions of science. So science is reliant upon the laws of logic. So for example, the law of non-contradiction, the law of, non or of excluded middle, uh, you know, all of these different laws, laws of identity that it, it's the way in which we reason. But science doesn't discover these things, it uses these things. But those are philosophical principles. In addition to that, our sense experiences. So uh, I teach uh, neuroscience and I have to explain and teach to students at the medical school how we interpret the world around us through our senses, what we touch and smell and see and all of this, right? And it goes through these incredibly complex pathways to reach our brain and so that we can make sense of the world around us. But there's no way of actually knowing that our sense experiences are accurate. So as a neurologist, when I see people in the hospital, like the last week I was on, there was a man who had delirium and every time I saw him, he was incredibly happy. And I said, you know, why is this guy so happy? He's confused, but he's happy. Uh, well, he was on the second floor of the hospital, but he thought that he was at a wedding. So every day that I went in, he's like, well, I'm at a wedding. Welcome to the wedding. I try to reorient him, but he was stuck in that wedding. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna reorient this guy anymore. He's like much happier being at a wedding than he is in the hospital. So it's like, okay, we'll just like, we'll work with this. Um, but you know, we, we don't, there's no way of knowing our sense experience is accurate. I could be having a heat stroke in a sauna in Finland right now and think I'm talking to you guys, right? There's no way for me to disprove that. It's, 
So, uh, but that's not a scientific point. That's a philosophical assumption. Okay. In addition to that, there's like laws of causality. So, for example, as a neurologist, I'm seeing effects or symptoms, and then I work my way back towards a cause of those symptoms, what we call a disease state. Uh, so, when that when we see effects, we expect that we're going to see a cause of those effects, right? But again, science is good at finding the causes, right? But um, Science doesn't tell us that there is going to be a cause. That's a philosophical uh, presupposition. Okay? Uh, that the universe, when we study it in physics, astrophysics, chemistry, that we know that wherever we look, we're going to find intelligibility. But science doesn't make the universe intelligible. It finds that the universe is intelligible. Okay? Again, that's not a scientific point. Ethics. Science relies upon ethics so that we conduct our studies ethically. And we see through the history, if you, if you read through the 20th century, both in the United States as well as especially in Germany, when ethics is detached from science, there's very terrible things that occur. Okay? And then we have faith. Uh, as scientists, especially as someone who's administering treatments, I have faith that those studies were done accurately, that the data was reported accurately. And this may seem like, well, of course it is. But there are studies showing that perhaps up to a quarter of the medical liter literature is fabricated um, or plagiarized. And in neuroscience, it's perhaps a third of the literature is fabricated. Uh, so these are really high numbers, right? So we have to you know, believe, have faith that, that people are acting in good faith when they do research. Last, it's an abstraction. Science is an abstraction. It abstracts away what we can determine through mathematics, so through what's quantifiable, what can be measured. So I think I'll hold the questions for the end, buddy. Okay. So, um, you know, so we abstract away mathematical principles. Okay. So we're abstracting those things away. But if you abstract something away, then there's something left behind. So science would not be a sufficient explanation for all things. Okay. So it's important to have a broader perspective. Yes, we can find truth through science. Science is wonderful at showing us what's called material and efficient causality. It's wonderful for that. There's tremendous benefits, and I've benefited a lot from that. But it's important, especially at the university level, to have a broader perspective that we can learn uh, quite a bit through philosophy, through literature. We can learn from the poets. We can learn from the prophets. We can learn from priests. We can, we, there's this wide array of, of ways of accessing truth outside of science. And that's important to realize as a university student. Okay. So when we talk about where, where did this kind of narrow uh, view that I've counter, encountered throughout my career, you know, where did this kind of narrower view come from? And you can trace this back to ancient Greece. You can look at people like Democritus, um, Epicurus. And these guys, you can, you can look back to those times and see like atomism and all those types of things. But it really started taking off in the scientific revolution. So if you think about, if you just start, say, for example, in the year 1619, there's a lot happening in the world at that time. So that was the scientific revolution was underway. In 1543, Copernicus, um, you know, determines that uh, perhaps the Earth is not the center of the universe, and he thinks the sun is. And, but he has no way of proving it. The telescope hasn't been invented. But then the telescope is invented. Galileo starts making modifications to the telescope. And you start to develop empirical data, 
that the Earth is not the center of the universe. So you start to see these kind of more certainty arising through the scientific method. You have Francis uh, Bacon coming up with the scientific method uh, of inductive reasoning. Um, so you start to see this flourishing. You see like Kepler's laws of planetary motion. You start to see a lot of the success of the sciences coming through at that time. If you contrast that to what's going on in the world, you have the 30 years war, which is a big religious war happening. So like religion's not looking good, the philosophers aren't agreeing, but science, you're starting to find answers to like real questions. So you start to see the success of the sciences. If you zoom in a little bit in 1619, Rene Descartes was a young man at that time and he was traversing through Ulm, Germany when winter descended upon him. So he ended up um, finding a heated room that he stayed in and he had a series of dreams. And after these dreams, he went on a mission to get philosophy and try to um, kind of work the scientific method into philosophy so that we could be more certain about things, okay? Um, in that process, Descartes accepts what's called the mechanistic view of the universe. And this is a, still a very popular view today. So the mechanistic view, if you imagine like a watch, if anyone, not a digital watch, but a mechanical watch, if you wanted to know how does this mechanical watch work, how do the hands move? Well, if you were to look inside, you would see cogwheels, and the cogwheels would be overlapping each other, and that would cause the hands to move. And you could, well, how does the cogwheel move? And you could take that apart and figure out how the cogwheel moves. And how do those parts work? And you can keep kind of doing that all the way until subatomic particles. And, and there you would say, once you get down to that level, then that kind of explains everything above it. So this would be the idea of like a me mechanistic conception of nature. And the universe is very much like this, according to this kind of view, where it's like a giant watch. And if you understand all the most basic parts, then you can reduce everything down to physics. So biology can be reduced to chemistry and chemistry down to physics, and you can have a complete kind of picture of reality through physics. When you get down to those subatomic particles, you'll, um, things like um, qualitative components, so like taste, smell, um, color, things like that, no longer exist at those levels. Um, so what's called the qualitative components. Um, at the same time, there's no like intentionality with matter. Um, matter doesn't do anything with intention. It has no free will. It just does things. It just acts. Okay, so this is mechanistic view. Descartes was a Catholic, and he wanted to hold on to some of the tenets of Catholicism, especially that human beings have a soul, and human beings have qualities that matter doesn't have. So, but they didn't fit into this mechanistic conception of nature. So Descartes had to posit that there are two substances, that the human being is two substances, a soul, an immaterial, non-extended substance, and a body, which can be explained through the mechanistic features of nature, okay? And then he awkwardly has to kind of put these two things together, these two very different substances he has to try to conjoin, right? Um, and it's a very difficult task to do. So he got all these psychological attributes, so beliefs, memories, sensations, feelings, um, all these types of things, and he posited that to the soul, and all the mechanistic things he posited to the body, okay? And that these two things interact. 
However, um, there's been no shortage of criticism against Descartes' position, and I think much of it's warranted. One of them is called the muriological fallacy, and that's where you ascribe an attribute to a part that only makes sense of a whole. So if you say, like, well, how'd you get here today? I said, well, I, I, I drove in on an engine, right? Well, no, I mean, I, I drove a car, right? An engine's the most important part of the car, but you can't reduce a car to its engine. There's many different parts, so you can't ascribe an attribute to a part of the car that only makes sense of the whole. So this is also true with humans. So Descartes wants to say that a, a human being, when it really comes down to it, is that immaterial substance, which he calls a mind. So you can reduce a human person to a mind. But this is a muriological fallacy. Um, this is raised by Bennett and Hacker. Um, a person is not identical with his mind. A mind is something a person is said to have, not to be. And having a mind, an animal, has a distinctive range of capacities. It is not the mind that is the subject to psychological attributes any more than it is the brain. It is a living human being, the whole animal, not one of its parts or a subset of its powers. It is not my mind that makes up its mind or decides. It is not my mind that calls something to mind and recollects. And it is not my mind that turns its mind to something or other and thinks. It is I, this person. So Descartes is ascribing attributes to a mind that only makes sense of the whole person who uses their mind to do such things. Okay, so that was one of the, the problems. In regards to other issues that arise, there's ethical implications of this. So when a person is said just to really be their mind, right? Well, as a neurologist, you know, I'm constantly seeing patients who are losing their cognitive capacities. So if you think of you know, um, as your grandparents age, many of them will develop dementia. And as many of you age, you too may develop dementia or lose certain capacities due to illness. And you'll lose cognitive capacity with time. Everyone does. And when someone has severe dementia, if, if you really just identify a person as their mind, well, they always say, well, the person's losing their mind. So I know even just practically as a neurologist a couple weeks ago, they brought a patient who was suffering from a stroke who also suffered from dementia. And she came in, and she was having difficulty understanding what people were saying. They were trying to move her to the CT scanner so that we could take a look at her brain. And I heard one of the healthcare employees say, this kind of, you can say whatever you want to her. In six seconds, she's not going to remember it anyways, right? So this kind of, this is just a body at this point. This is no longer... Um, a person, right? Their mind is gone, right? So you're just kind of this person that we're lugging around, but the person is, is, has been gone for years, right? Well, I, you know, I pulled that person aside and I said, you know, human dignity is not identical to one's capacity, especially their memory. And I corrected that person. They apologized to, to the whole group. Um, so it's important to not reduce a person to something like a mind, and Descartes, you know, he, he wouldn't endorse something like that either. But I think the implications of his philosophy can lead to that type of thinking. Okay? And then um, in my own field, there's a lot of objections to Descartes from neuroscience. So neuroscience starts really taking off in the 1800s. So you have this guy, Pierre Paul Broca, and he follows this man who has, um, he's had a stroke. And as a result of a stroke, and, and Broca doesn't know he's had a stroke, He's uh, having difficulty communicating. 
The only word that he can say is tan. He can follow commands, but if you say, hey, repeat after me, today is a sunny day, he'll just say tan. Um, what's your name? Tan. So everyone called him tan. Um, so Broca, at this time, you have to realize, like, we know a lot about the human body, but we know very little about the brain. So having worked in, with cadavers, which is when someone donates their body after death to science, and like medical students get to learn about the human body, if the brain is not preserved uh, properly through modern techniques, including refrigeration, um, and this happened with the cadaver when I was in medical school, when we took the skull off, the brain just poured out. Like, you know, it just, it didn't look impressive. It didn't look like it had this high function within the human body. It just like, you know, just like went onto the floor. And um, so back then, if someone died, I mean, you would mostly do, you would mostly do post-mortems on criminals. So you, they would be executed and then they would be brought for immediate dissection by a bunch of scientists. And, um, you know, so at, at that time of Broca, the very little was known about the brain because you couldn't preserve it and you couldn't study it very well. So Broca follows this guy for a number of years and the man finally dies and then Broca removes the skull and looks at the brain and sees where the damage is. He says, wherever this damage is, is going to be the area of the brain responsible for expressive language, the ability to speak. So he does this and he looks at the brain and he sees an area of necrosis in the left inferior frontal gyrus, which is called Broca's area. This method catches on, Carl Wernicke for receptive aphasia. So like as I'm speaking to you guys, you guys are receiving what I'm saying and understanding it hopefully. Um, so that's the superior temporal gyrus of the brain. So Wernicke does the same thing. There's someone who has receptive aphasia, Wernicke follows that person, they die, he looks at the brain, there's damage in that area of the brain, receptive language localizes to that particular area. When I was a resident, when we would do um, epilepsy surgery, um, it was a team of neurologists and neurosurgeons, and you would put the person to sleep, you'd remove the skull, and then you'd wake the person up. Um, and you would stimulate parts of the brain. So you would get an electrode, and you'd put a little electricity in it, and the person would say, I feel my arm tingling. I'm having a flashback. Um, you're moving my arm, you know, um, things like that. So they have experiences. And then you're trying not to cut out delicate tissue, so you're working around those areas that you're stimulating. Um, so what you start seeing is these psychological attributes that were once ascribed to this immaterial component to human beings is now being ascribed to areas of the brain. Like you can just be like, there it is. We can stimulate it. We can look at it. And then functional MRIs, when those come out in like the 1990s to early 2000s, then you can put someone in a functional MRI and that shows blood flow patterns in the brain. So if you send someone in and say they, take a, they look at a picture of their girlfriend or their boyfriend, you can scan their head and see what areas light up. You'd be like, oh, that's romantic love right there. You see right there? That's it. Um, so you start to get all these psychological attributes and you can start ascribing them to the brain. Okay? All right. So this has led many philosophers and neuroscientists to what's called physicalism. Physicalism is like it sounds. It means that uh, the person is purely physical. They're purely material. Um, there's nothing like an immaterial mind or a soul. In my experience as a neurologist, you know, this can seem obvious. So when I um, see brain damage, I often see damage to the mind, right? 
Um, and as um, you know, one of the things I have to do, unfortunately, is declare brain death as, as a major part of my job. And even if someone's heart is still beating, their kidneys are still working, they're still digesting food, if their brain is dead, we say that the person is dead and we declare brain death, okay? And the person is dead, not just their brain. So it's easy uh, as a neurologist when you're in this field to see someone simply as their brain. So before we were saying the person is reduced to their mind as kind of Descartes. And now modern science is saying a person is essentially their brain, okay? Um, when I teach neuroanatomy, I teach the different areas of the brain that are responsible for different things. We call that the material causes. So as I'm moving my arm or I'm speaking, there's a, an, an area in my brain that gives me the capacity to do this. And we call that the material cause of my speaking to you. Okay. Then there's neurophysiology. And this is what we would say is the efficient cause. It's that which brings about an action. So we talk about within those areas that are responsible for me speaking to you, there's also electrical events happening in those areas, okay, like action potentials, and maybe you guys have learned this in school, depolarization and these types of things as the efficient causes of my speaking to you. But is this really an adequate way of explaining my speaking to you, right? Is this, does this explain everything? If you just say the material causes and the efficient causes, is that sufficient to explain things? So, um, I was at this event over the summer through the Thomistic Institute, lovely event. It was for faculty who go around and do speaking. And um, there was this man there from Italy, and he told the most beautiful stories. He's the best storyteller I've ever heard. And he told this incredibly romantic story on how he met his wife, and not only how he met his wife, but like all the things he did to woo his wife and their wedding. And it just made like, all of the other men there looked terrible. Like this guy just went so above and beyond. He told this wonderful love story. And my children were there and it was just like a great experience. But what if my children were like, hey dad, I never heard the love story on how you met mom when you were in college. So I said, okay kids, well let me explain to you the love story on how I met mom in college. But I'm only gonna explain it through material and efficient causality. Okay, this is my six and eight year old. So it's like, um, so it would go something like this. This would be the love story. It's like, it was a sunny day in Colorado and the sun reflected off your mother and it hit my retinal ganglion cells. And when it hit my retinal ganglion cells, it sent an action potential through my optic nerves and it crossed at my optic chiasm. And then it went to the optic tracks where it hit the lateral geniculate nuclei. And then through the inferior and superior optic radiations, it went back to the primary visual cortex. And then the indirect and direct streams to the fusiform gyrus. And then I recognized your mother's face. And then from there, and listen kids, this is where it got interesting. You know, my caudate nucleus and anterior cingulate gyrus, they depolarized like they never have in their, you know. And then, it, and then from there, a signal went to my right insular cortex and it increased the sympathetic tone throughout my body. And then my adrenal glands started secreting more catecholamines, which increased my heart rate, which increased my cardiac output. And then from there, the mean kinetic energy in my lungs increased. 
And what happened to me is what the less educated call a warmth in my chest, you know, <laughs> um, right? So this would be like the worst love story ever, right? Um, you know, so if my kids were like, well, dad, what's the, what's the meaning of love? What's the purpose of love? What qualities of mom were you attracted to? What's the essence of love? And I'd say, you know, um, purpose, qualities, essence, you know, we're going to put you in more STEM classes, you know, <laughs> what are these things? You know, they don't fit into a mechanistic conception of nature. And then as a last kind of, you know, if I'm old and I'm dying and my wife outlives me and I say, you know what, I don't want my wife to ever not have my love. So I'm going to have some neurosurgeons. They're going to go in there. They're going to resect those areas of my brain that are responsible for love, caudate nucleus, anterior cingulate gyrus, the insula, all these putainment, all these areas, they're going to cut them out so that my wife can have those after I die, so that she'll always have my love. And she can just kind of keep it on a table next to her, right? I mean, is that my love? No, of course it's not, right? But I think if materialism is true, if everything's just material causes and efficient causes, then I do think that would be true, right? But it's ridiculous. It's obviously not true. And the reason that it's not true is because for two things to be identical, such as psychological attributes and the physical makeup of my brain, the material constituents, they need to have the same properties. So for two things to be the same, they need to have the same properties. This is very obvious. For two things to be the same, they need to be the same. Okay. Physical things, like in the description of my love story, they're quantitative. They can be measured. They take up space. You can measure the depolarization. You can look at the areas. You can see the length and the width and all of those types of things, right? But then if you look at something like the qualitative components of love, what it feels like to be in love, can you really measure those things? Um, you know, if, you, if someone's never tasted chocolate before and you say, I'm just going to describe to you what chocolate tastes like in third-person terms only, and you will know exactly what chocolate tastes like. Right? No, of course they wouldn't. They'd have to taste the chocolate. Even if you describe every physical part that happens in the brain about chocolate, you're never going to know what chocolate tastes like until you actually experience it. Physical things are completely objective. So, like I said, the things in that experiment are completely objective. They're public. They're open to imaging techniques. You can see them. They're fully explained by third-person perspective. Okay? But if I think about someone like my wife, you know, her experience is private. It's first person. And I can't know what she's thinking or anything unless I ask her. Even if I image her, I could find correlations, but I could never know what she's thinking unless I actually ask her. When we taste chocolate or we, f or we have kind of the feeling of love within us, we can always kind of step back from that. If you taste something or you experience something, you perceive something, phenomenologically, you can step back from that and you can look upon it. You can judge it. You can discern what's good about it, what you like about it, what you dislike about it. You know, the self, it can always transcend that which you're experiencing. So you do this in mindfulness, for example. You can let your thoughts come by like clouds and judge them, watch them, say, that's a good thought, that's a bad thought, that's not helpful. There's always this stepping back within the self, okay? Um, in addition, so in a mechanistic conception of nature, there's no freedom. So events just happen. Um, 
one physical thing causes another physical thing, just like a row of dominoes. So from the Big Bang, it's like pushing a row of dominoes where everything just falls. It doesn't decide to fall, it just falls. And such would be the mechanistic conception of nature, in my opinion. But hu humans have free will. You've decided to come to this talk. You've picked a major. Someday you may ask someone to marry you and all of that, right? You make these choices. You deliberate on things. And then you follow through. You, you say, this is good. Therefore, I'm going to do it. This is bad. I'm going to avoid it, OK? But the material world doesn't work that way, OK? So if humans have qualitative, subjective, and intentional properties, and matter does not have these properties, then a human being cannot be purely material. Okay? Um, you can't, and a, a principle in philosophy is what's in the effect must be in the sum total of the causes. So if humans have awareness, free will, intentional qualities, um, you know, we have purpose, and we have meaning, and qualitative and subjective experiences, but matter doesn't have any of those things, and we can't be purely matter, okay? Um, at the same time, I think that this also commits the meteorological fallacy, just like Descartes did. If we say that a person is their brain or a part of their brain, this is a problem too. So right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm using Broca's area, right? I'm using the left inferior frontal gyrus to speak to you. But it's not my left inferior frontal gyrus that's finding words. It's me. Um, it's not my fusiform gyrus that recognizes someone's face. It's me. Um, when you went out on a date or something, and the second date you decide to end it, you don't say something like, you know, it's not you. It's my dorsal medial prefrontal cortex just isn't depolarizing like it used to, right? Uh, during this date, um, I've had some transient ischemia to that area. I'm so bored, you know? Um, so it's, you know, you don't talk this way because it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, I think there's ethical implications too. You know, I take care of a lot of people who are disabled. And you know, I have people with profound intellectual disabilities. And I had this um, one woman who was having over a 1,000 seizures a day when she first came to see me. And she was mute. Um, she couldn't really interact all that well with her external environment. But what if as, and she had been from this physician to that physician to this physician. And her parents said, you know, she's never been treated well. They don't listen to us. Um, they don't really you know, see why this is a, why we should be caring for this, our, our daughter as we should be. So they just don't treat her with respect. And I can't help but to see that they're reducing her to her capacities of her brain. Her brain doesn't function as well as someone else's. So they're kind of reducing a person to their brain. And when you do that, not all brains are equal. And I can tell you that as a neurologist, we all have different capacities. Some of our capacities are much higher than other people. But we still, you know, so if that's true and a person is their brain, then equality is impossible, okay? We all vary in our capacities over our lifespan, right? So, you know, when we're in the womb, there's very few capacities that we have. And even when we're born, there's very few capacities that we have. Um, in terms of animals, um, the human species is very slow to mature. Like, you know, other animals are left pretty early to fend for themselves. We have like 26-year-old people who live, live in their parents' basements. So like human beings are not like the fastest to gain independence. Nothing wrong with that, you know. Um, it's hard to find a job, so it's okay if that's your plan. Um, so, um, you know, so 
it's just important to realize that right now in, when you're in college, I felt this way in college, it's like you're at your most independent. You're at your healthiest. But as you age, you're going to start losing capacities. And it's important to realize that especially as you lose cognitive capacities, your dignity is not identical to the capacities that you have um, in your brain. Okay, You remain um, at, with just as much dignity as you continue to age and lose capacities. So if you, you know, walk through these buildings, I'm sure there's at Clemson, there's probably beautiful art all around. You know, if you guys gave me a tour of all the art on campus, all the beautiful paintings or something like that, and uh, you said, Dr. Lepeno, you know, what do you think about this painting? And I said something like, I just talked about the chemical composition of the paint and I, and I just say something like, yeah, it's just a bunch of paint strokes, you know, just a bunch of brush strokes, right? You say, this, guy, this person's crazy, you know? But for some reason, when we say that about human beings, it's okay, right? Human beings who are created in the image of God are much more beautiful than any painting, yet somehow we can get away with saying a person is nothing but X, Y, or Z. But we can't do it with a painting. So how do we best explain our human capacities more holistically, more accurately? So if we consider my speaking to you, there's the material causes, and I've mentioned some of those, my left inferior frontal gyrus, my supplementary motor cortex, my cortical bulbar tract, the cranial nerves going to my face, my vocal cords, and all these other things that I have to teach. Uh, we can talk about the efficient causes of my speaking to you. So that's like the depolarization, the action potentials, the blood flow, the electrical impulses that are occurring, okay? Um, and these things can be studied. We can do a functional MRI, and you can study these things. You can do EEGs. You can look at these things. You can take pictures of these things. And a lot of people, they make a big deal out of these functional MRIs. So um, they'll look at these psychological attributes and you know, you, you can see them. Scientists have discovered romantic love in the brain. Scientists have discovered God in the brain. Scientists have discovered wisdom in the brain. Um, I mean, this stuff is just, as someone who teaches this, it's just very, very stupid. Um, it's just like, if I found you guys on the street and I was just like, hey, would you guys be surprised if I told you that when you're doing things, you're thinking that your brain is doing something. Would anyone be surprised by that? No, right? Would anyone be surprised if I said, when you're doing certain cognitive tasks, whether it's walking or fishing or you're speaking to a crowd, that there are different parts of the brain more active than other parts of the brain? Would anyone be surprised by that? No, right? When I read these studies, this is the same as someone being like, hey, Dr. LaPena, do you know that scientists discovered you use your legs when you're walking? And it's like, what? You know, why would they study that? Um, of course they do. Well, did you know that they use your, you know, use your tibialis anterior muscle when you dorsiflex your foot when you're walking? Like, no, I didn't know that, but okay, you know? Um, like these things aren't surprising, right? So we shouldn't be uh, wowed by this. And this is the difference between what's called what's necessary and what's sufficient. So um, yeah, those areas in my brain and the electrical activity that occurs, those things are necessary for me to do the things that I do. But there's a difference between necessity and sufficiency. So my car, for example, it's necessary that it have gasoline in it so that I can drive here. But it's not sufficient. I need like a gas pedal. I need to shift. I need a steering wheel. I need four wheels. Okay? 
So the brain is necessary for us to think and do these things. No one is denying that. Um, but the question is, is it sufficient for the human capacities that we have? And I would say it is not. Um, more is needed. So if we follow in the thoughts of Aristotle and Aquinas, um, the tradition kind of prior to the scientific revolution would say material and efficient causality is not enough. You need formal and final causality. And I'll explain what those, what those are. So in the scientific revolution, those things, because they cannot be measured, have been abstracted away. Okay, and what's left is what can be measured, which is the efficient and material causes of things. The formal cause of my speaking to you, I talked about the efficient and the material, but the formal cause are my thoughts and how I organize and unify my thoughts, the intelligibility of my speaking to you. Um, the form of my speaking to you, it kind of gives life to, my, to what I'm saying. It gives shape and contour to my speech. This is also part of my speaking to you. And then there's what's called the final cause, and that's the purpose of my speaking to you. Okay? So it's all four of these things, the material, the efficient, the formal, and the final cause that fully explain why I'm speaking to you. If you want to explain what a table is, you could talk about the material cause, the wood, right? You could talk about the efficient cause, that which brought it about by action. You'd talk about a carpenter who built the table. You would talk about the final cause of it, the purpose of it. It's to study at or it's to eat at. And you would talk about the formal cause, the shape, the contour of it, that the thing that makes it a table, right? If it's just wood and everything else, you wouldn't call it a table. It's the form of it. So we were able to call it a table. So to explain anything, you need to posit those four causes. And that's true of our actions as well. And these are real aspects. They're even more primordial. Uh, but they're not something that's quantifiable. So my purpose and things like that, it can't be measured. So it's a single act of speaking to you, and it entails four aspects. So the material, the efficient, the final, and the formal. And this is not the interaction of two substances contra Descartes. Rather, it's four aspects of one event happening in one substance. Some of these things are material, and some of these things are immaterial. Okay? And sometimes people get surprised to hear someone who does science talk about things that are immaterial, um, because science can't really discover these things. But I think we know that immaterial things exist. At least I think they do. Um, when's the last time someone's tripped over a proposition? Or hit your head on a law of nature? Or if someone asks you to pick up three facts from the grocery store, are you going to come back with anything, right? Are you going to find the law of non-contradiction under your bed, right? Probably not. Um, but these, these are not material things, OK? So in the Catholic tradition, um, Aquinas following Aristotle, they think that matter is an abstraction, that matter alone doesn't exist, that matter always um, has form, that the most basic things are substances, and substances are always compo composed of form and matter. Matter is the many things that something can become. Form is that which directs and unifies the matter to become that which it's intended to become. So when you talk about the human being, you would say that the soul is the form of the body, according to Aquinas and Aristotle. That, that yes, we do have a soul, um, but it's not a separate substance like Descartes. That the soul and body, it's one thing. Okay? And the soul, it gives life to the body. 
it directs the matter to become that which it's going to become. It unifies. So it has these, it has these purposes, okay? Um, so that's just kind of like Aquinas' position in a nutshell. We can talk more about that. But it's important to just kind of say like the job of neuroscience. So the job of neuroscience is to talk about material and efficient causality, and it does a good job at that, and it will get better with time. It talks about the chemical and the biological kind of um, substratum that gives us, that helps give us the capacities that we have, okay? The chemical and biological substratum, okay? But it doesn't have any business making metaphysical claims, okay? That's not part of science. And in particular, it's not part of neuroscience. It's just not something that neuroscience is capable of doing. So you don't want to go to a neuroscientist to talk about what love is. You'd want to read a poet. You'd want to go on a date. You'd want to do something like that, okay? But you would not want to get a definition of love from a neuroscientist. That's not where you're going to find the deepest truth of what love is. So I've tried to kind of paint a picture of what a human person is not. So we're not a brain, okay? We're not just a soul, okay? A person is something that's irreducible. Anytime we say that a person is X, a collection of atoms, a bunch of cells, a brain, or as one philosopher put it, a moist robot, um, we will dehumanize individuals, okay? And again, once you start working in the real world, if you ever become a doctor or a nurse, I promise you, you will see this all the time, okay? Um, it, it, we've seen this through our history, but whenever you reduce a person to X, you have to realize that whatever that thing is, whether it's a brain, a soul, or anything like that, it's not going to be equal amongst all people. So you can't have equality. Okay. Um, yeah, a person is not a sum of all their psychological attributes either. Okay? The same thing is going to happen. As their psychological capacities diminish, the person would diminish with those psychological attributes if they're identical to them. Okay? So if I could maybe just briefly kind of build a portrait of the human person uh, to the best of my ability, realizing that the human person is a mystery. And mystery is not something where it's like, well, we just don't know what's going on. To some extent, that's true. But a mystery is something that's super rational, super intelligible, so that our language and our words can never exhaust what the definition of that thing is. Okay? So that's something that's a mystery. Okay? In Genesis 1.27, we hear... So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's this idea that part of what it is to be human, part of our dignity, is that we're created in the image of God. The Bible doesn't tell us what that actually means. It just states it. The tradition, especially the Catholic tradition, has held that to be our rationality. That God has an intellect, God has a will. Human beings have intellect and will. Um, so if you read someone like Aquinas, if you read Augustine, he would say the intellect is, is that which kind of raises the human being above the beasts of the field. Aquinas kind of picks up on this as well. Um, and the intellect, I mean, it really is something that's amazing. I hope you guys realize that as you're studying here at Clemson, just the amazing capacities that you guys have. I mean, it is truly remarkable that you know, we can have conversations like this, that you can 
contemplate things deeply. You can think about what's matter, you know? Has matter always existed? Did it come to be? Um, if something, you know, comes to be, does it need a cause? If matter uh, needs a cause, then what would be the cause of matter? Um, you know, does matter change? If something changes, then is it changed by another? And if that thing's changed by another, is it too changed by another? And can you have an infinite regress of one thing changing another? Or do you need something for which it doesn't change, that which we call God? You know, you can start asking these deep, deep metaphysical questions about reality because you have this wonderful gift of the intellect. Um, you can contemplate something like, okay, I have an immaterial component to my being. Wow, you know, that's, that's remarkable. If I have an immaterial component to my being, though, um, and, you know, everything that is has an explanation for why it is and the attributes that it has, then what's the explanation for an immaterial soul? And you would begin to raise those questions and you would say, well, it couldn't have come from matter because matter, combining with matter, two material things can't possibly produce an immaterial thing. That's not possible. There's no mechanism for which that would occur. So if it's immaterial, then it would have to come from nothing if it didn't come from matter. Well, what has the infinite power to bring something into being from nothing? God, you know? So you start to get these kind of deeper understanding of reality. The, the mind can kind of ascend um, to these, you know, unbelievable truths. Now, there are some objections to this, of course, and maybe they've hit you. One of them is... Well, you know, Dr. LePen, you just said that if you reduce someone to something, um, you know, there's danger of inequality. So if we say that a person is really a rational being, well, not everyone has the same degree of rationality, right? Um, the Thomistic tradition here would hold that every human being at all stages of life has a rational soul. It's just that due to either immaturity of the central nervous system or the material and efficient um, causes, that that rationality can't manifest itself because of damage to the brain or immaturity or things like that. But nevertheless, it's still there, okay? So that's you know, how Atomus would answer that. Now, another objection is, though, that you never go out on campus and come back and talk to your roommate and say, you know what, I met a wonderful rationality today. Um, I met this amazing free will today. Or I met this, uh, you know, this intellect today. Actually, we do say that. But, um, you know, so that language kind of wouldn't make sense. So although a human person is created in the image of God and this is tied to our rationality, the Catholic tradition has expanded upon this to include other components of the human being. That were relational is another thing. I think it was uh, maybe John Paul II that really raised this point, but that were uh, relational. You guys are <clears throat> daughters, and you send daughters, your, your sons. You may end up being mothers and fathers and um, grandparents someday. You're in relation to other people. You're in communion with other people. The Trinity is a relation of three persons in one, Okay. Um, a communion of three in one. Humans resemble this as well, that we're in relation to one another. Okay. The other part is that each person is unique, and this also plays into um, what it means to be human. There's this um, 
verse in the, in the Bible, a couple of verses in the Bible that I've been meditating on in regards to the Eucharist, but I think it also applies here. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So in the Thomistic tradition, this is one of the ideas in which how God creates. He creates through the logos, through the word. He can speak things into existence. Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be dry land, and there's dry land. Um, you see that in, in Jesus, that um, Jesus too has this kind of performative speech. He's not merely describing what he says actually makes a reality happen. So he says something like, little girl, rise, and she rises. Um, he says words and restores vision. When they're at the storm on the sea, he, he, he rebukes the sea, and he says, be still, and it's still. He turns the water into wine. What he says, the words he speaks, they actually bring about a reality. When he says, this is my body and this is my blood, it's not merely descriptive, it's productive. Okay, That's the way that God creates. But at the same time, God has said, let there be a your name, <laughs> and you were. Okay, so each person is created as a, th that originated as a thought in the mind of God. So each person is unique. No matter what circumstance they've been born into, they're unique. They were intended. And that gives each person added dignity. Okay, um, and this is important because life is really difficult. Um, in college, it can be difficult. Um, you can struggle with mental illness, you can struggle with physical conditions, you can struggle with emotional problems, you can struggle with so many other things, but it's important to realize what you are, that you're not your struggles, okay? You're created in the image of God, you're in relation, you've been spoken into existence by a loving God, and those things are important. We have free will, we're morally responsible beings. We're capable of choosing good and we're capable of choosing evil, okay? I think in our society, a lot of times you guys hear, well, it's just, you know, freedom is just making a choice. It's just, I want those shoes, or I want those shoes, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. But what I could tell you as a doctor and just someone who's lived life and seen hardships and that you have to realize that when we make a free choice, the free choice is only as good as the objective good chosen. So if you make a free choice, to start smoking cigarettes, you're going to actually lose freedom and become addicted to smoking cigarettes, okay? So although that was a free choice, it leads to enslavement, okay? And this is true with so many, so many things, right? Um, you know, we, we see this um, in things like, you know, pornography as well. It's like, okay, I choose that freely the first time, but after the 200th time, is it still free? And does it enslave you to seeing other human beings as objects, right? This is not freedom. This is enslavement. The objective good must be good, okay? All right. Now, these are just brushstrokes, an attempt to illustrate the mystery of the human person, that we're unique, we're rational, we're free. 
We're made in the image of God. We have a body and soul. We kind of straddle between the angels and the animals below us. We're somewhere in this kind of unique position of, of, of body and soul. Okay? And in regards to dignity, with human beings, you know, if you, it, it's one of those things that if you, you just can't reduce a human being to anything non-personal. So if you got the very least among us, the very least human among us, whatever that would mean, right? <laughs> um, but if you added up everything non-personal in the universe, if you got all of the galaxies, if you got the sun and you got the moon and you got the oceans and the mountains and the flowers and you got all of those things and you added all of them up, it would be found wanting to the least of us. Okay? That's a lofty view of the human person. But that's the Catholic view. Okay? Um, and I think it's true and I think it's beautiful. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.